In your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 41. We've been in a series on Isaiah. You know, there are a number of uh, competing religious systems in the world. Each claims to be the true system, uh, to have the truth about God and man, life. Think of all the different competing systems. You're Mohammedan and Buddhist and Hindu Judaism, Christianity, all your various cults. If you were to devise a test as to which is the truth, what would you come up with? What kind of a test would you propose? Would it be which has the most followers? Which is the oldest? Well, God devises a test here. God, God throws out a test. In chapter 41 of Isaiah, verse 1, you have the call addressed to all people concerning the true God. Who is the true God? In verse 1, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. God says to all people, come together and let's, let me propose a test as to who is the true God. Uh, you have the prediction of the coming one from the east. In verse 2, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword. God says, uh, There's one who's I'm going to raise up from the east. And uh, he will conquer nation after nation. I will see to it that that happens. Now, who this person is is progressively revealed as you go along in this section of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah chapter 45 and uh, verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor. Jump on over to page, to chapter 46 and verse 11. From the east I summon a bird of prey from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about, and what I have planned, that will I do. And the individual that God would raise up was Cyrus the Great of Persia. Uh, and uh, he would have great exploits, as we pick up here. Now, when did Isaiah live? When was this prediction made? Isaiah died around 700 B.C. And uh, Cyrus began his victorious campaigns around 549 B.C., so a century and a half ahead of time, at least a century and a half ahead of time, God names this individual and tells what he will do. He hasn't even been born yet. Won't be born for over a century. Now, his amazing series of conquests would culminate, and this is detailed ahead of time, would culminate in the conquering of Babylon and the releasing of Israel 
who the people of God uh, who have gone into captivity in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, releasing them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, reestablish their nation. Now, when Isaiah writes this, they haven't even been conquered by Babylon, although he predicted that that was going to happen. We looked at that uh, in 39, chapter 39 of Isaiah, that they were going to go into captivity in Babylon. That happened 606 B.C., about a century later. And now he tells what will happen after that, that Cyrus will come on the scene and conquer Babylon, and they'll be sent back. Now, uh, this, of course, gives critical scholars real problems. Because if this is true, then God is the author of the Bible. God guided Isaiah. Only God knows what's going to happen a century and a half off, or a century off, or 15 years off, or 10 years off. Only God knows this, in a sense. And if he details this in this way, well, then he must have guided Isaiah and the other writers of the Bible. So, your critical scholars have problems with that, and so they've come up with Deutero-Isaiah. You say, who is that? Well, that's a good question. Because nowhere on the stages of history, nowhere in the Bible, anywhere else, can you find Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah. But they've got to move this section of Isaiah forward 150 years until after the event happens. Or God guided Isaiah. So they invent Deutero-Isaiah. If you read Philip's translation of the Bible, you'll read about Deutero-Isaiah. And they read the critical commentaries, you'll read about Deutero-Isaiah. Nowhere else ever, anywhere on the stage of history is he mentioned. Because that doesn't really solve the problem, because in Isaiah 53, see, they move Isaiah 40 through uh, 66 forward and attribute it to Deutero-Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 goes forward not 150 years, but goes forward 700 years to the coming of Christ and details about his death. Uh, talks about his obscure origin. Yeah. Grow up in this obscure place, then he will uh, be rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted of grief, uh, that he will suffer an atoning death. He'll be crucified with wicked men. He'll, he'll die with wicked men. He will make his grave with the rich. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. After he dies, he prolongs his days. He's resurrected. And then he divides the spoil with the strong. He's victorious. Now, all that <coughs> and many, many other prophecies about Christ are way beyond Deutero-Isaiah. And so you don't really solve the problem. Uh, 300 B.C., the entire Old Testament was translated into uh, Greek, the Greek Septuagint. And uh, uh, so you've got at least 300 years ahead where all these things are being predicted. And uh, it's actually it's much longer than that. Well, uh, that's just part of the wharf and woof of, a, of the Old Testament. And uh, so here's this amazing prediction of the future. And God uses that as a challenge here. 
as to a test as to who is the true God, what is the true religion. And it also raises the question of control. Who's running things? In uh, verse 4 of chapter 41, he says, Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. I'm the only true God. I'm in control. I tell the future because I plan the future, he says. Now, now you get the preparation as these nations come. He's called everybody that's come together. We're going to have a showdown as to who's the true God. You come and bring your gods, bring your religion. And so here's the preparation made for this big contest. In verse 5, the islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble at this challenge. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith. And he who smooths with a hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. And he says of the welding, It is a good welding. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. Here's the preparation of the craftsman for the event. Each of them says, All right. Come on, and they get their religion in order. They get their idol. They say, nail it together good. Make sure everything's welded solid. <laughs> well, <clears throat> now there's the call addressed to all people concerning who is the true God. The comfort addressed to God's true people. If he is the true God and you are God's true people, that's, that's very comforting. And here's what he says in uh, verse 8. Their relationship to him. He says, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. Uh, their relationship to him. Now, let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was, as he claimed to be, God, the Son, who became man, was God and man, that he died in your stead, undergoing the punishment due you because of your rebellion against God, that he paid in full for your sins, that he rose bodily from the dead, that he ascended, that he's at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in him alone as your approach to God, that you have no hope of God accepting you except Jesus Christ? He is your trust. Is he your master? Do you have a master? Is it Jesus Christ so that his Word determines what you say is right and wrong, what you believe, and what you try to do. You try to obey Him. And when you disobey Him, you're grieved about it, and you try again, and you make progress. He's your master. If that's so, then you are one of His people. And this statement made, You, O Israel, my servant, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, that applies to you. You are part of that covenant people of God. 
God says, I will be a God to you, Abraham, and to your descendants after you. And you are one of his descendants. You have a faith like Abraham's faith. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession to you and your descendants. You have Canaan as your possession. Heaven, the promised land, is yours. Uh, so, notice their relationship to him, your relation to him, his companionship with them. Verse 10. So do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise. His companionship with you. What does that mean? What's included in that? Power over your enemies, verse 11. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Uh, power over your enemies. Now, he recognizes your weakness. He refers to you and me as a worm. <laughs> as worms. Verse 14. Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He understands that we are very weak compared to our enemies. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. They are our real enemies. And we're no match. You're no match for the devil. You're no match for the world. You're no match for your sinful remaining self. But he is, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so he says, verse 15, See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. Now here's a weak and helpless object overcoming great obstacles because of help derived from another. But what obstacles do we face? Do you face? You say, boy, <laughs> big obstacles. If you understood about my marriage, if you understood about my health, if you understood about uh, my bills, if you understood about my family situation, my, uh, my son who's rebellious, or whatever it is, big obstacles. Well, uh, he says, I will be with you. I will be your strength. Fear not. I am with you. I am your God. I will give you aid. Now, he promises to provide for our needs. In verse 17, he says, The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. He knows our needs, and he can meet our needs. What are our greatest needs? You say, well, I have a financial need. Well, there's a promise about that. Jesus said, don't be anxious what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of such things. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. All these things shall be added. But your deeper needs, 
You need forgiveness before a holy God. That is your greatest need. That's every man's greatest need. He needs forgiveness because the wages of sin is death, which means hell. You need forgiveness. You need power. You need a new heart. Take the stony heart out of my flesh. Give me a heart of flesh. You need His Spirit within you. You need uh, something in the face of death. He's provided that. All of that's provided. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's conquered death for every true Christian. He's given us a new heart. He's given us His Spirit. I will pray the Father. He'll give you another comfort, even the Spirit of truth. He's given us His Spirit. All this is provided. Paul says, he that spared not his own son. All that's through the death of Christ. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his son, he'll give me everything that I need. That's what it means to be in a relationship with him. Now, we see the the call addressed to all people as to this contest, who is the true God. We see the comfort addressed to God's true people. Now, the challenge addressed to those false gods. They've all come together. And now God proposes this test. In verse 21, it says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and to know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that your gods do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. All these different religions there. God says, all right, here's my test. Tell the future. If you're in control, if you're God, tell the future. Allah, Muhammad's God, tell the future. Hindu God, tell the future. Buddhist God, tell the future. Notice, they can't do it. There's the challenge, but there's the conquest. Verse 24, but you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. The Living Bible puts it like this, paraphrase it. Anyone who chooses you ought to have his head examined. Amen. Now, what about the the contemporary scene? I mean, this we now, you know, 
2,700 years later. What about the contemporary scene? Is the challenge still good? They couldn't answer in Isaiah's day, but what about today? Can the God of the Bible still say, when I asked them to predict the future, they could not do it? Well, you have some modern instances of prophets predicting the future. Here's uh, 20th century prophecy, Gene Dixon and Edgar Cayce. Uh, Gene Dixon, 1952, while she was kneeling before a statue of the Virgin Mary, had a vision in which she saw the President of the United States elected in 1960, assassinated. Now, that prediction was published in Parade Magazine in 1956. And in 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The prediction came through. True. She also uh, predicted uh, uh, six months ahead of time Robert Kennedy's assassination. And she said it would happen in California. She unquestionably predicted the future. Now, she missed a bunch. She predicted that uh, the Russians would be the first one to have a man on the moon. She missed that. Uh, Edgar Cayce was born in 1877. He lived in the Virginia Beach area. As a child, he would go into a trance, and they would be giving him the name of a sick person. And uh, he would diagnose their sickness. Never met him, just as a child, and he would give some home remedy, which if they take, they'd get well. And in many cases, it proved to be correct. He predicted some things that happened. He predicted the uh, fall of the stock market. But he missed a, a good many. He missed, he said Japan was going to sink into the ocean. <clears throat> he said California was going to drop off the side of the United States. He said that Hitler is going to be a good man. <clears throat> he missed a few. He missed a few. Now, today uh, you've got your channelers. Shirley MacLaine has popularized these channelers. We used to call them mediums. They've gotten uh, a new name now. And her book, Out on a Limb, sold five million copies. What about Gene Dixon, Edgar Casey, the channelers? Their views are certainly contrary to Christianity. Uh, uh, Casey has the idea that uh, through many reincarnations, you grow to heaven. You don't go to heaven, you grow to heaven. Uh, how do we know which is true? All of these demonstrate supernatural power. Uh, well, compare the prophecies. Gene Dixon or Edgar Casey at best prophesy ten years ahead. They miss a lot. The Bible never misses. The Bible doesn't prophesy ten years ahead. The Bible prophesies thousands of years ahead in great detail. Great detail. Uh, just think of the <clears throat> instances of that. Uh, you have the where Jesus would be born prophesied by Micah some 700 B.C. Thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Euphrates, not least among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth he who is to be ruler of my people. They had predicted that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9, Behold, O daughter of Jerusalem, thy king cometh unto thee lowly, 
and having salvation, humble, riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Zechariah prophesied he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, what would happen to the 30 pieces of silver? They'd be thrown down in the temple. They would go to buy the potter's field. Uh, Isaiah, I mean, uh, Psalm 22, David prophesies what Jesus will say on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What his enemies would say. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. What they would do with his garments. And how he would die. He has pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my garments. Uh, it's prophesied that uh, the very day he would die on, the 14th day uh, of the seventh month, for 1,400 years they've been offering that Passover lamb. He was the lamb. Behold the lamb. He would die on that very day. Not a bone of his broken. None of that lamb's bones would be broken. Uh, in the afternoon, everyone gathered. Oh, we could go on and on and on and on. Nothing like that anywhere else in the world. No one even claims that. In other words, it's like, it's like when uh, God gave Moses certain signs to show Pharaoh. And Moses goes in before Pharaoh and he throws his rod down and it becomes a snake. Pharaoh calls in his magicians. He calls in Gene Dixon. He calls in Edgar Casey, And they throw down their rods. And they became snakes. There was supernatural power at work. But Moses' rod ate up their rods. And then Moses says the Nile's going to turn to blood. And they were able to duplicate that. And he says the locusts are going to come. And they duplicated two or three things. Finally, they, they said we can't keep up. Sure, there was the miraculous on both sides. There was supernatural power on both sides. But one was clearly, clearly, clearly superior to the other. That's the position we're in. Exactly. Uh, how do you explain the prophetic insight of Gene Dixon? Well, you get an Old Testament story of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22 and uh, verse 19 where... Uh, the Jehoshaphat is joined with Ahab, and they're going to go against Syria. But Jehoshaphat's nervous about it, and he says, "Well, uh, is is there a prophet of the Lord? Uh, these false these these prophets. Uh, you've had some who have said that uh, we'd be successful, but I'm not comfortable. Is there a prophet of the Lord here?" And, and uh, so they call in Micaiah, and. Uh, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right hand, on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And by what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed. And enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. God is not the author of evil, but God uses evil for his own good purpose. God didn't cause Judas to betray Jesus. Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But God used that to fulfill his plan about the death of Christ as his way of saving us. God uses evil. For his own good purposes. Now, uh, Second Thessalonians two, ten 
and 11 says, Because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. If we're not really committed to following truth, why, God will let us believe a lie. He'll send a strong delusion that we would believe a lie. You know, it's interesting to read Edgar Casey. As a young man, Edgar Casey knew, he began to realize that what he was teaching conflicted with what the Bible taught, and he believed the Bible was the Word of God. And this was he was really torn. And somebody came along and said, well, you remember it says that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. He said, that's it. The Bible teaches reincarnation. John the Baptist was reincarnated Elijah. No, no, he wasn't. John the Baptist was like Elijah. He was another Elijah, like another Luther would come on the scene or another Calvin. But that gave him an opening to begin to mesh his false teaching with the Bible's true teaching. The point is, if a man is not determined to cleave to the truth, there'll be opportunity and a rationale to depart and yet convince yourself that you're following truth. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, says, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods which you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. God allows these stumbling blocks to test and prove us, and have positive proof of our commitment to Him. Well, God's given ample evidence of His truth. Look, anywhere you want to, you'll find no other religion even claiming the kind of thing that we set forth there as all of this predicted prophecy. No question of it being there. The critics of the Bible never even try to answer it adequately. They don't really tackle it. Now, uh, <clears throat> there are many claims from other directions that come. And God presents his case and he says, all right, let's let them present their case. You weigh their case, you weigh my case. Remember Elijah. <clears throat> Elijah... In his day, the people were so misled that they weren't sure whether the Lord was the true God or Baal was. And Elijah said, all right, let's have a test. Let's lay a sacrifice on the altar and let's each call on God. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And so the prophets of Baal, they laid theirs out. And they they cried out to Baal, oh, Baal, send fire, B-A-A-L, B-A-A-L, you can do it, you can do it, Baal, Baal, Baal. And nothing happened. And then Elijah laid his out, and he said, Lord, let it be known that I've done all this by your direction, and you are the true God, and I am your servant. And fire fell and just ate up everything, the sacrifice and the water he'd poured over it. 
All the people fell on their knees and they said, The Lord, He is God. And He said, If the Lord be God, follow Him. Look, if anything else can do for you more than Jesus Christ, if Buddhism or Mohammedism or any other ism or materialism or anything else can do more for you than Jesus Christ, follow it! But if Jesus Christ alone is the true God, and if He alone can save, and if He alone can conquer sin and hell and death, follow Him! If Christ be God, follow Him! And don't turn, and don't deviate. Follow Him with all of your heart, and all of your soul, and all of your strength. That's the message here. He gives His evidence and He says, Choose. It'll cost to follow Christ. It cost Him. It'll cost us. It's worth everything else in the world. And if we follow Him, that means every area of my life brought under His control. Is there some area of your life you're not following Him in? That you're conscious of? What do you need to do about it? Maybe you've never made that initial decision to have Him as your master Trust Him as your approach to God, your Savior. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you convinced that Christ is who He claimed to be and that the God of the Bible is the true God? Are you following Him? Is this some area of your life that you're not following, although you've committed your life to Him, you're not following in some area. What would he have you to do about that? Have you ever made that initial surrender? Maybe you've never made that. If you're not, why not right now choose? If you're convinced that he's who you claim to be, choose in your heart. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I choose you. I thank you for the overwhelming evidence of your claim. And I trust you as my Savior and I surrender to you as my Master. Come live in me. Amen.